Hello, I'm Vern Sumnick. I've been helping clients with their personal finances since I was a stockbroker in 1983. I became a registered investment advisor in 1988 and have been working as a fee-based advisor ever since. I think you might be very surprised to learn about all of the fees hidden in mutual funds. I know I was quite surprised and found out little bits slowly over time. Um, I didn't know probably for 20 years that the mutual funds, for example, had commissions and that they didn't have to disclose these commissions. Now, it wouldn't be so bad if it was 10 basis points, one-tenth of one percent, but it's not 10 basis points. If you read an interesting book called Bogle on Funds, it was a book written by John Bogle, chairman of Vanguard. He delineated a lot of the fees that are hidden in mutual funds. Now, we all know that there's front-end loads, back-end loads, 12B1 fees, etc. These aren't the fees I'm talking about. Those fees are generally disclosed, as are the management fees, or what's called the expense ratio. That is, the fees paid to manage the money in the fund and, and uh, care for the fund. Those expense ratios are disclosed in the prospectus and by law are required to be disclosed in the prospectus. However, the commissions, as an example, are not disclosed in the prospectus and they're not by law required to be disclosed. There's a small disclosure of the total commissions that a mutual fund pays annually in the supplement to the prospectus of a mutual fund, but that has to be asked for, and it just discloses one lump sum. It doesn't disclose on a percentage of your investment what those fees are actually. And I think that if people understood they were twice as much as you thought you were paying, in other words, you think you're paying maybe one to one and a half percent that's disclosed in the prospectus as a part of the expense ratio. But if you were to find out there was another one to one and a half percent you were paying that wasn't disclosed, I think most people would be quite surprised. And frankly, that's the case. Now, in a managed mutual fund, and I'm not talking about a load fund or one that has a back-end load or one that has 12B1 fees, I'm talking about a, a true no-load fund, a fund that has no front-end, no back-end, no 12B1. It discloses an expense ratio. It has a manager managing the assets in the fund. Well, every time somebody puts money into that mutual fund, the fund has to 
pay a commission to buy stocks to get that money invested. Makes sense, right? In addition, if somebody goes and wants to redeem their shares, they go to the fund and the fund has to sell stocks, again, a commission, in order to get the cash to buy back the shares from the shareholder that wants to redeem them. Not only that, every time the money manager decides, well, I don't like these stocks, he wants to sell them, okay, another commission to sell the stocks that he thinks needs to be sold. And then, of course, there's cash that has to be invested, and so another commission when he buys the stocks that he now wants to hold in the mutual fund. All of these commissions, according to John Bogle, can be estimated. Um, one way to do it is look at the turnover ratio of the fund. So if the fund turns the portfolio over, uh, portfolio over about 1%, for example, annually, that means he sells, in effect, everything in the portfolio annually, and you know he's a large cap, say, value manager, you can estimate the average large cap value stock might be whatever, $50 a share. And you know the size of the fund, you can estimate how many shares the fund owns. And then you can multiply that by a transaction cost that they pay. Um, and you can get an estimate of about the cost of commissions in a fund. But a lot of people have done that, and the consensus is that you pay about another 1% on a money on a managed equity mutual fund, maybe one and a half. Could be higher on small cap funds, small cap funds that are growthy. I know there's a fund called the Kaufman Fund. Don't know what their costs are today, but at one time, their expense ratio was 2.5%, um, and they were pretty aggressive, so I can imagine their commission costs were approximately that as well. Anytime you have a small cap growth type mutual fund, it's going to have more turnover, going to have more commissions, whereas if you have a more of a larger cap value-oriented sort of buy-hold fund, it might be a little less in commissions. But on average, you're looking at 1% to 1.5% in commissions. Now, that's not the only costs, but while we're on commissions, let's discuss commission rebates. Okay, uh, an institutional investor probably pays one cent a share to trade large cap U.S. stocks. He might pay two cents a share if he's trading um, maybe smaller mid cap international stocks, and he might pay three cents a share for um, emerging market stocks. But generally speaking, institutional rates are a penny a share. However, there's no law that says they can't 
pay more than a penny a share. The law says that they are fiduciaries and they have to be conscientious and look for the lowest price to get the services that they need for the fund. But therein lies the rub, as they say, because what's right? Um, for example, you could pay 12 cents a share, you could pay 24 cents a share, and you can argue that it's worth it because the fund um, receives from their broker uh, research materials, uh, reports, uh, Quotron machines, um, access to special uh, information, etc., that uh, makes it a good value to pay a higher commission. And whether that's true or not uh, is really a, a judgment call. It, it Certainly, the regulators would call a foul if it was really outrageous. But here's the thing. Commission rebates are not illegal. In other words, some firms rebate commissions back to the fund. And the way it works, and I know this because I've been approached by brokerage firms to be involved, and that is, hey, if you want to pay a penny a share, fine, we'll do that. If you want to pay more than that, we'll rebate 50% back to the fund. In other words, if you want to pay 12 cents a share, we'll rebate six. If you want to pay 24 cents a share, we'll rebate 12 cents back to the fund. Well, that's a lot of money or can be a lot of money. And because there's no disclosure of those commissions, um, what's being paid in commissions, it's, um, you know, I think pretty, uh, you know, let's say there's a reasonable incentive to pay a higher commission if you can receive the commission rebates. And um, that doesn't go to the fund per se, the investors in the fund, it goes to the fund, the manager of the fund. On top of that, there's uh, the bid-ask spread. Suppose that's a mutual fund uh, operated by a particular brokerage firm, and many of these larger brokerage firms make markets in a lot of various small-cap stocks. And when there's a bid-ask spread on a stock, that their mutual fund buys, guess who keeps the difference between the bid and the ask? Or, for example, bond funds. Bond funds are, called, are always done as what's called principal trades. In other words, when bonds are sold to the brokerage firm, um, the brokerage firm buys them at one price, whatever they negotiate, and sells them at another price, whatever they negotiate. And so the difference between what the firm buys those at and those bonds at and what the firm sells those bonds to their mutual fund at is a spread that's kept by the fund. Another way that 
mutual funds can hide fees and earn money off of your money, so to speak, is that they can borrow your shares, right? Hypothecation. I think everybody knows that when you open a brokerage account, you sign a hypothecation agreement. Generally, you're required to sign a hypothecation agreement. What is a hypothecation agreement? A hypothecation agreement allows the brokerage firm to borrow your shares to people, to other investors that want to go short a particular stock. For example, suppose the fund owns Ford stock and suppose there are investors out there that want to short Ford stock. So the way you short a stock is the brokerage firm borrows the stock on your behalf from another investor, maybe a mutual fund, and it sells it to you. But, you know, the guy that's going short doesn't get the money to, when he sells the stock short. The brokerage firm holds that money, kind of as collateral. And, of course, that money gets put in a safe place, short-term bonds, treasuries, etc. And maybe right now it's not a lot of interest, but in effect, they keep the interest on those short sales. And the way that the investor makes money is hopefully this stock that he borrowed, he can go out into the market and buy back at a lower price than the price he paid to borrow it. And if he can buy it at a lower price than he borrowed it at, he can give it back to the broker. In other words, he can buy it. Suppose he borrows it to go short at $12 a share. Later on, the stock goes down in value. He can buy it at $10 a share and return it to the broker and the broker can return him $2 a share. So that's basically how somebody shorts the market and why they hope that the stock goes lower. When you short a stock, you hope the stock goes lower so you can buy it back cheaper and return it to the brokerage firm. And the difference between what you borrowed at and what you can buy it when you buy it back later cheaper is yours to keep. But in the meantime, which could be a very long time that you're holding that stock short, the brokerage firm makes interest. It's called the short interest rebate. So there's a number of ways, and unfortunately there are others, in which mutual funds make money that's not disclosed to the investor. Basically, as John Bogle puts it, the hidden fees in mutual funds. This is one reason why investors have been so attracted to exchange-traded funds. The way that exchange-traded funds operate, the mechanics involved in buying the shares, in how the fund owns the shares, how the fund redeems shares, etc., how this is all done is different. And it's probably for another podcast we'll talk about the reasons why someone would want to hold an 
exchange-traded fund as opposed to a no-load mutual fund. But the bottom line is it's cheaper, a lot cheaper. I hope you enjoyed that. Sorry if I spoiled your day, but now you know you can go out and look for exchange-traded funds as opposed to the traditional open-end managed mutual funds. Sometime we'll also discuss the difference between indexed or passive investing and active investing and why that's so much cheaper to be a passive index investor. And not only is it cheaper, it's better. But that'll be another podcast. Thank you very much.